0: Welcome to the Church Times podcast. Try 10 issues for £10, or two months access to our website and apps also for £10. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash new reader. Thank you. Good morning. I'm Angela Tilby and I've got the pleasure of chairing this session with Cole Morton on his first novel, The Lightkeeper, which I hope some of you have got and more of you will buy shortly. Um, Cole is a journalist. This is, as I say, our first novel. He's written for The Guardian, for The Mail on Sunday, and right across the spectrum, as you can see. And <laughs> That's one way of putting it. Well, yeah. one one sort of <laughs> pays off the other, as it were. And also is, has made quite a, a lot of documentaries now for Radio Four yeah. um, in an in independent capacity, which is is a very good thing to do. Um, he lives near Beachy Head, and those of you who have read the novel will know how that imagery of the South Coast and the lighthouse and all the rest sort of hugely runs through this novel. Do you want to just take us through some images of your...?
1: So this sort of locates where we are. Um, This is um, a group of uh, hills and cliffs called the Seven Sisters, um, Mm -hmm. and that's Berlin Gap. uh, And those are two unfortunates that I captured in my lens. I have no idea who they are. (laughs) Um, But it just reminded me of a... uh, uh, the cover of a Nietzsche book I read once when I was an undergraduate. Anyway, um, uh, this, is, this is a painting by er- Eric Ravilius, um, f- uh, made, I believe, from the lantern room of the Beltut Lighthouse, which is a, a very real place. Um, and David Shaw, who owns the Beltut Lighthouse, would like me to point out at this point that it's very beautiful and open for bed and breakfast, and not, a, not in any way semi-derelict like it is in the book. <laughs> and it's also, also they, they managed, about uh, 15 years ago, they managed to move it back from the edge. So it's actually safe to be there now. W- whereas um, the, the, the plot takes place before that. So that's rebellious. Um Just some images of, the, as you can see, the cracks appear in the, in the, in the uh, edge there. Recently we lost uh, 40 feet of cliff in the storms last week. Um, uh, so, a big chunk off the side. Uh, horizontally. Yeah, that way. So, if that's the edge, 40 feet that way. Not, I mean, just for a, a, a small area, but still, that's a lot of stuff. If you're having a picnic on the beach, it's a lot of stuff, I can tell you. Um, there's the drop. Uh, these, I'll talk about them in a minute. They're, they're the beachy head chaplains who patrol the edge, volunteers patrol the edge in all weathers 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Um, so they intercept about four or five hundred people a year yeah we'll, we'll talk about them more um, I think I'll we'll stop there so th- so this here uh, is Beltut the the lighthouse that's on the cover there are red and white stripes um, because there's another beachy head lighthouse which is um, uh, down at the bottom What I can tell you about this lighthouse is that it was built by um, subscription in the 1830s uh, and there was great pomp and ceremony, the Mayor of Eastbourne came out and there was a brass band and everybody was very happy, lives were going to be saved and then they pretty immediately realised that it was no good um, because the mists come down and you can't see it from the sea, which is not a great thing for a lighthouse really. Um, So they built another one down there which we call the the New Lighthouse because it was built in 1902 and that's the one that's got red and white stripes and the red and white stripes somehow managed to appear on the cover. Which is, which is good. Uh, actually, it gives us something to talk about.
0: Uh,
1: OK, so that, th- those are the pictures for now. That's it's
0: really helpful because, actually, these are the kind of scenes, I don't know about you, but I've had in my mind hmm. while I've been reading the book all the time. They've, you know If you've been there, and many of you have, I suspect, um, they'll have somehow imprinted themselves and you'll have been seeing seeing the whole plot against mm. this background. Um, Cole, this is your first novel, mm. um, and I'm reminded of that curious phrase, everyone's got a novel in them. <laughs> is this your one that you Yeah, been... some of them are terrible, though. I know, this <laughs> is true. Well, <laughs> is this the one you've been burning to write for a long time? This, uh, this
1: one took 14 years. Yeah. Um, That's a long time. I mean, obviously, that, that happened alongside lots of other things. I mean, during that time, I was, I was a reporter, so... You know, for example, in that time I covered uh, the death of Nelson Mandela in South Africa and the Olympics in London, so I was a bit busy. But on on the other hand, also, um, we moved to to this area 16 years ago, and I knew as soon as I moved there that I wanted to make some sort of written response to the place I was in to try and understand it. And I'd written a non-fiction book called Hungry for Home about the west of Ireland, which was also about landscape and belonging Mm. and scale And uh, the possibility of the divine in the the big landscape. And um, I wanted to respond to where I now lived in the same way as I had to Hungry for Home. So I started off trying to write non-fiction about the place. And there were themes and ideas and uh, things I was grasping after that just would not stay confined to non-fiction. So I moved into fiction to try and explore them better.
0: Mm. And is this going to go on? I mean, you've got a second Mm. book in mine
1: i've got uh so this is the f- this is the fifth book in total yeah but in terms of novels i've got another three i can think okay. of. so who knows yes, maybe yeah, yeah. i hope so but you know if um, we're spared
0: i think what you explored in this was something very much i mean the, the the phrase on the edge comes to mind yeah um and the sense of suspense you know this it, it's not just a landscape it's also a metaphor for something that's part of the human condition. Mm. Um, This was, this runs through the whole book in a way. I mean, do you think this is something which is particularly of our time and of people now facing Mm. the kind of big and small issues that we do all the time? Mm. It's living on the edge, how it is for people today.
1: That's an interesting question. And I I think you, you might characterize it a different way, which is that we're not quite sure where the edge is. We're not quite sure where to put our feet because so many of the certainties that seemed so assured in the past Mm. have have disappeared. Um, And, you know, we're besieged on all sides by people shouting shouting at us to tell us what is true and what isn't, and we don't always believe them. And so we're sort of confused and wandering around. And I think that can feel very edgy. Um, on the other hand, and I think of this place in particular, um, you know, we, we, uh, we are used, those of us who live there, are used to seeing the helicopters go over, used to seeing the coast guards go out because people are drawn to that place because they're desperate. I mean, I, I should say, as you can see, it's spectacularly beautiful. Mm. So m- More people are drawn to it because it's spectacularly beautiful, but some people are drawn to it because they're, they're feeling desperate. And so for them, it represents an, an ending. But... Um, that's been the case here for at least 2,000 years. Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a story um, of, of a centurion, a Roman centurion who, reported, who wrote, wrote in his report that he had seen a, f- that a famine had taken place in, in a settlement there where the lighthouse is. And um, the women and children were, were starving, and the men of the community, in order to uh, save them, lined up on the edge and held hands and all jumped together. Mm-hmm. And that's, that story is 2,000 years old. Oh, near enough. Um, so there's so there's been something liminal, something edge-like about this landscape for a very, very long time. And I do think that one of the reasons why people are drawn to it right now, both for positive and negative reasons, mm. is that um, it's, it does speak to us. Yeah. And and just to finish that, there's a, there's also a positive side to it, which is that when you go, I mean, Ed, Ed Newell was talking about this yesterday. It is Newell, isn't it? Have I got yes, that? right? Yes. It Was talking about this yesterday. Um, you know, when you go there and, and you see that landscape, imagine standing by that tower. You have, you have a horizon so wide that you can see the earth curve. And you have a sky enormous. And, you, and the weather changes four seasons every ten minutes. Um, and in that space, Ed was talking yesterday about how uh, we, we, seem, we seem somehow to naturally... Empty ourselves in a space like that because of the scale of it, and that allows room for the divine to come in. Mm-hmm. So it is. So it is a place of beautiful meditation. It's. It's. You know. It's my. It's the place where I go to pray, for example. Yeah. And I'm not alone in that. Yeah. There are many people who do that.
0: Just following on that a little bit, I'm, I'm very struck at the moment, in a way, in the in the absence of, of, people feeling at home with church and with formal religion, that mm. the idea. Of death as a sort of dissolving back into the universe, of sort of giving yourself up into nature. You know, you become a star or something like that, which is quite often found among people who don't have a formal religious framework to, to live in. That does seem to resonate with people, doesn't it? There's a kind of peace about the Lion going King back. Theology. Yeah, going back into nature, becoming part of it. Yeah, and it's so it's so sort of classically obvious here with yeah. that wideness of wideness of sky and sea you know you are a small thing it's there ready to receive mm. you um mm. all of that and yet there's another side to that goal which i found reading the book that that slightly sort of sinister sense that you're not quite sure um if it's friendly out there if it's not necessarily friendly it's <laughs> elemental yeah. it's huge yeah. um, and the figures of the guardians are very ambiguous in 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 the novel i mean magda is i mean she's, yeah. she's out to Get, get them to drop off isn't she is she yeah, is she is she, <laughs> is she? Is she? Well, spoilers you tell, you tell me <laughs> uh, okay can i just pick up uh, yeah
1: before i talk about the, the guardians let me just pick up about uh that not necessarily friendliness of the environment of course of course you know this is this is all also directly correlates to the divine you know as as, yeah. as we as we approach what if the divine is there we're, we're not it's not all wine and roses mm-hmm. it's not all fluff and chocolate mm-hmm. you know yeah. um and so I think, I think it's easy in that landscape to begin to have it. I'm not, I'm not you know, you, obviously you have to step back from the idea of making it a, a literal translation and saying, here is the divine. But it is easier in that landscape to get a sense of what that might be and how that might feel. Mm, mm. And that includes the wildness and unpredictability yeah. of it. Yeah.
0: Let's just hear a little bit. Would would okay. okay. like to read us the beginning, because this'll, this'll, if you haven't read it, this will give you a flavour.
1: Yeah. Can I, can, I say, can I answer the thing about the chaplains first? Oh, yeah. Briefly. Yeah, sure. Yes, Sorry. of course. They no, do, do, do. Um, I just wanted to say this. Um, I want to be absolutely clear about this. The guardians in the book are not the chaplains in real life. The chaplains in real life are wonderful people who save lots of lives every year. Um, and uh, some of them are friends. And to the best of my knowledge, none of them are up to any, any harm. <laughs> okay. None of them are up to no good. I want to yeah. say that out there. Um, and so the guardians... Um, on, on one level are inspired by the chaplains but they, but they also there are ways that they behave that uh, don't relate to the way that the chaplains behave at the moment the chaplains are a very professionalised organised group that work closely with the police for example mm-hmm. all I'll say on that in this space is that they didn't used to okay? so there's one or two things that might be there uh, which might relate to how they used to be in their early days okay. that's all I'm going to say about it.
0: I think it's hugely complex. I mean, the same should be true of the Samaritans with the, when you're dealing with people who are very near the edge, as it were. Mm. You know, where, what, what intervention you have which could lead people in either direction. I mean, you're hoping to save life, um, but it, that uh, isn't always what comes out. But that's another. Mm. Let's come back to that. Yeah, we'll come bit. back to Let's that. Let's get a bit yeah. of the flavour.
1: Sorry. Um, right. Um, I'll stand, but I'll stand behind here.
0: Are you hearing all right, everybody? Is it okay?
1: We're recording, apparently, so there we are. So what I'd I'd like to read, uh, chapter one is tiny um, and sets the scene, and then chapter two uh, begins with um, someone calling for his, his lover. You don't jump, you just keep walking. One step, then another. The edge of the cliff is close now. She can feel the drop but dares not look down. Her eyes fix on a shimmering far out to sea. Fingers of light reaching down through the clouds to stir the waters. Like a scene from one of the stories her father used to tell when she was still a girl and still believed in miracles. She stares at the dazzling light until her eyes go funny, but even when she closes them, it's still there, burning. She feels sick, dizzy. Her feet will not move, they will not walk. Her legs shake, her arms ache. Wide, open like wings to fly or to plead for mercy. The wind comes from behind, lifting her arms as if to carry her away. Sarah, he calls, but he knows. Even as Jack turns the key and pushes the door with his shoulder, he knows. The worry that was there all morning and on the street and in his head is louder now as he runs up the stairs, turns another key and falls into the flat. Where's the cat? She's always here at this time. But not now. Sarah's coat isn't on the peg. Her bag isn't on the bench. Sarah! Her laptop is still on the table in the kitchen, the little green sleep light pulsing. You home? There's no sign of movement from the half open bedroom door, no sound from the bathroom, no cat, only the traffic, like waves breaking, the sleep light pulsing. Jack runs his finger over the touchpad and the screen wakes with an image. The sky, the sea, the sun, on the water. He knows the place immediately. She told him about it. The day they first met. In the park. She was golden. Her skin shone under a white summer dress. He didn't know what to say. Jack had to force himself to look away from her body and into her face, into eyes that were laughing at his voice. You sound like the movies. I like it, she said. And he felt so weird and far from himself that he could only grin back at her sarah took him to the palace to see the guards she took him home with her like a lost hound and jack was found and in the weeks with her that followed they went everywhere a boy from new jersey could possibly want to go in england including this place the one she loved the most the south downs landscape of her childhood where the hills lined up to face the sea the sky was so vast and the water so wide they could see the earth curve on the horizon they walked on chalk And grass, and looked out across the English Channel, and she said, Wait, 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 here it comes. And then he saw in front of them the sudden, shocking drop. The land just fell away. 500 feet, she said. Five seconds to the rocks. He counted, moving closer. Five, four, three, two, one. He leaned right over to see, and she got scared. Come back, you idiot! You always go too far! She was furious with him when he jumped back and laughed. And she walked away from the edge fast, right away, and hid behind her camera and wouldn't speak to him for a while. But it was already on her camera, the picture he sees now on her laptop screen. The sky, the sea, the sun, on the water, as if she was hanging in the air somehow when she took it, suspended in midair, And he knows, really knows, where she's gone and what is wrong and what she might do. He shouts for her, knowing she is a 100 miles away, a roar, not a name, but a sound. Sarah! And Jack is away down the stairs, past the bike, fast outside and into the car, stamping down on the gas, making the engine howl, yanking the handbrake up and off hard so that the slow, rusty old wreck moves off in the stream of traffic without a signal. Let them blare, let them swear, let them all get out of the way. He's coming for her. Wait, Sarah, wait! Hold on!
0: Great, thank you. One of the things that you all have noticed about... Keeper is that it's written in the present tense. Yeah. Um, it all happens like a film in front of your eyes. Um, the only other person I can think of done this is H- Hilary Mantel in her um, b- body, you know, the Anne Boleyn series. And it does give a terrific sort of breathless tension to the whole thing. Does it set other uh, sort of technical problems oh, yeah. in writing in this this way? <laughs> Why I mean, do you think it took 14 years? Well, yeah, indeed. <laughs> 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 but, what, what, what's it like to actually do that? Does it run in front of your eyes as a sort of film?
1: Yes, OK, so a little bit about the, the, way, that, the way that I write. Um, and this, this actually emerged out of writing nonfiction. Mm-hmm. Um, the first four books were an attempt, uh, usually an attempt, to write nonfiction true stories using huge amounts of research, but to give them the pace <laughs> of thrillers. So the first one was about Ireland, the second mm. one was about the Second World War and fathers after the war. Um, and so as I, as I began to write those, what I would do habitually would be to mass the research, um, know everything that I could about a scene, and then take myself into that scene mm. and, and look around and see what mm. I saw mm. and, and, and watch it play out. It's just, it's, it is a kind of a meditative thing. Yeah. Karen Armstrong w- w- talks, as you know, about how the process of, of writing and research for her is a kind of meditation, um, a kind of prayer. And, and you know without putting, overstating it, that would be the case for me. And, and so, in that situation, you, you find yourself being in a space and writing um, what you see. I don't know quite how to under, understand or describe the mysteries of what that is, mm-hmm. really. Um, and then when it comes to writing fiction, of course, the, the technical problem straight away is that there are a million choices for every moment. So where do you go? Um, and what you do is you follow the character and you, and you, you I'm, I'm struggling to understand how to even begin to describe it. Anyway so for example, there's a scene in the book where Sarah at the age of three um, is taken to see her mother who is dying in hospital and um, it's, it's a beautiful uh, moment, now I, I wrote that on, actually on the cliff edge on a, on, in, a, in a B&B on, right on the cliff edge one night um, and I have no idea where it came from, mm. I have no idea how that happened, why that scene emerged but I wrote it as if I was in the room describing what I could mm-hmm. see mm. and, and I, w- I was weeping mm. at the end of writing it you know a psychologist would have a field day wouldn't they well i think
0: i think what the present tense does is that it it uh, it it does open the imagination doesn't it because if mm. you're writing in the past you've got much more control you know you, you you plot in advance and then you fill in the it's a bit more like painting by numbers but yes. it's not uh, not surprising i think that in some of the spiritual techniques of meditation um particularly i'm thinking of the Ignatian, Mm. spiritual exercises, actually that living through, say, a scene from the Gospels in the present tense does open the heart and the mind to all sorts of things that might not have Absolutely. occurred if you'd been writing careful lists looking at your past. Mm. So there is something very generative about putting yourself in that, that present moment.
1: And as, and as you mentioned that, I remember mm. um, a couple of summers that we spent on Iona with John Bell, yeah. who uses that um, to take you into gospel stories I, I, I remember him talking about um the feeding of the five thousand. from a choose, choose a character and be in the moment so that w- would be very specific to that but the other thing that technically it does is it uh, um it, it almost appears to remove the authorly voice mm. so you so you're in the moment instead of being aware of being in the presence of a narrator mm-hmm. and that i absolutely was determined to do because I wanted people to feel like they'd inhaled the book rather than read it.
0: I think that's a very good uh, that's what it felt like mm. you, know, you did feel as if you were, you were breathing it in living it at the time and the, that's partly why it's so t- tense because you really don't know any more than the author appears to know at that stage <laughs> what's going to happen next and you know, that, that corresponds with such a lot of the way, um, way we live and make our actual decisions mm. in a sense
1: and, th- and, and actually in order to produce that effect I think it's 68, 70,000 words in order to produce that effect I pro- probably wrote 150,000 yeah. and pared back and pared back. Yes,
0: yes. It's all in the editing, isn't it? The mm. blue pencil is the most valuable thing. I wish some preachers knew that, you know, it would be really, <laughs> really helpful for them. Um, one thing that I noticed, which it actually took me a bit of time to notice this, and you helped point it out to me but in earlier correspondence, because um, I'd sort of half taken it in, but not entirely, was that there are biblical resonances in the names running Mm. through the book, Mm. that quite a lot of people have biblical names. It's it's obvious with Sarah because she replicates the the barrenness of the biblical Sarah Mm. and her longing to have a child and the difficulties of all that 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 come up in the book but there are and, and gabe of course i got on about page 300 <laughs> <laughs> close, 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 close. Uh, well that's why he's called the keeper for most of the book <laughs> yeah, exactly <laughs> not giving uh, it away but some um, oh i was meant to yeah. not get it at first <laughs> <point>. <laughs> <laughs> that's helpful. Uh, but tell me about that because was this was you were teasing us a little bit here i think but I was, was te- there more me. going on
1: yes there was mm-hmm. more going on um so i i, I w- <sighs> we're always being told aren't we that we are in a culture that no longer re- recognizes the old stories, mm. is no longer religiously literate, um, no longer knows the Bible stories, no, uh, doesn't know the resonances. And so, I, you know, I do, and I, wanted, and I wanted to write a story that did, you know? So there was, a, there was a, a determination to locate what was going on in a world where the divine was possible, well, not, not even possible, was definite, was, in, was mm. there, mm. bidden or, or not bidden, as, as they say. Um, so there was that. But then, of course, in addition to that, you need a grounding for that. So, um, I mean, I, it, it's interesting that we, here we'll talk about it as these being the Christian stories, but, of course, in a, in a Jewish setting, they would be very much mm-hmm. talking about them being Jewish stories. And there is a, Jewish, a strong Jewish element that runs through the naming of Jack's mother, for example. Um, and so I wanted, uh, um, I wanted each one of the characters to have a, a being that, uh, that that you responded to immediately and em- emotionally that then you were caught up in the action but then as you started to think about them there was something below the surface and then if you knew the stories you would begin to see the resonances and then if you went back to the stories and thought about them again you you might make connections that were not there before
0: mm-hmm.
1: so it, it should work on all those levels
0: yeah I'm interested that in a way a lot of them are Old Testament figures. Mm. Um, I, re- I remember a long time ago um, being told rather jokingly by a lecturer in Hebrew that the, the, uh, the whole of the Christian gospel was in the Old Testament and the New Testament was just the glossary of difficult words in the back. And I've always <laughs> found that ex- <laughs> extremely interesting. It's I mean, not least because it is the Hebrew scriptures which do connect the Christian world to other faith traditions, both to Judaism and and in a a sense to Islam, Mm. and to the universal themes of meaning that would come from other places altogether. Mm. So I mean that seems a a very good way of opening Mm. your world, in a sense, to an interpretation which could be mystical, could be religious. Um, Where does the specifically Christian come in, I mean, I've I've got a quote from you that goes back. uh, Do you mind? No, I don't I I don't mind. Let me me disclose to you. This is Cole writing in 2010. The old uptight self-serving God of England has failed the people and is now ignored. So do you see. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Cole. You've just, <laughs> done, you've just done to me what I do
1: to other people every I week saw, in yes. interviews. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Andrew. But I did it nicely, didn't yes, I? Yes, you and did. <laughs> <at the hospital. laughs> no, that's Go what. That's the secret of the it. interviewer <laughs> is you never feel the knife going in. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, that's from a book called "Is God Still an Englishman?" It was written in response to the George Bernard Shaw quote from 1911: "The ordinary Britisher imagines that God is an Englishman." Um, and it was about the uh, the imperial certainties of church, crown, and state, mm. and how that had been formed, and how they'd come apart. Um, I I uh, used as the beginning of that modern process the the wedding of Charles and Diana in 1981, mm. and how that seemed to be a national festival of certainty, and how everything had become uncertain after that. So, so his God still Englishman was a way of unpicking the 30 years since mm. at that point, and saying, OK, we are, we are moving away from a position of being a Christian nation. But uh, I th- I've always thought that, that was a problematic idea in that the way that we were a Christian nation seemed at odds with what I know of Christ. Mm-hmm. That's, that's one thing. So was there, therefore, a way to mark the ending of that and perhaps look to celebrate what might be possible? And uh, that also, of course, ties into... Uh, Changing population and uh, the diversity of voices that come into our lives now, yeah. so um, what I was what I was trying to communicate in that uh, quote, which is so um, dreadfully taken out of context is that 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 god of certainty, if you like that, that sort of uh, church crown, and state certainty is is, is long gone yeah. you know i mean. Uh, reflecting on that I, I wrote in that book that I felt at that point 2010 that the Church of England in particular was perhaps um, entering its death throes mm. my goodness they're going on aren't they yeah. but but um, but what is what is of course implicit in saying that if you're not saying it from a position of rejoicing is that we believe in resurrection mm-hmm. so there's something something bigger, better, brighter, newer, more present, more imminent, more visceral, coming from that process. After, after all, it's only an institution. We're not talking about God here.
0: Mm-hmm. There's always a sort of sense that, that death is near an in institutional life, isn't it? That's why I think institutions have become so defensive. And the institutions seem to me to put work and have courage and not afraid to let themselves die. Um, I, I know a small community of Anglican Benedictines near um, in Kent, in West Morling, who are really looking at the end. You know, they won't last much longer. And they're supremely untroubled by it. You know, they say, that, well, you know, this is this is for now. And what happens next, we don't know. It's that sense of sort of mm. giving up control, I think, mm. which is really important. And in a way, I think that the very spiritually ambiguous landscape you point is also a sense challenging the reader about control of their own mm. lives All your characters, in different ways, are dealing with bereavement, with loss, with uncertainty about the future. And they all resolve it differently. That great drop that sort of stands in the middle. Um, I I have some sympathy for those who go over the edge in the end, whose lives have become so intolerable that they can see no way out. Is that part of your um, sympathetic range because I've always also been brought up to think that you know suicide is is one of the worst things that one can 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 do, and it's it's not acceptable within a mm. Christian view of life. Um, mm. But yet, one's sympathy, one's heart is touched, particularly by the character who does make that decision, however mm. much it's his his own or not mm. in the book. I mean, what what did you feel about that scene and mm. that decision?
1: Um, okay, a couple. Pick up a couple of things that you said there. I mean, what, uh, just to pick up on the institutional thing. Yeah. It's, it's Schrodinger's God. Put God in a box. If you open the box, God is dead. But while the box is closed, God is still there, it, or is God there at all? Who knows? Yeah. Anyway, it, um, the uh, the issue of the end of life feels. Um, I always want to be really, really. Careful as i talk about it you know because uh, uh, as it stands beachy head is th- is the number one suicide spot in the world yeah. so we have to be very careful how we talk about it and and i would say at the beginning of any discussion about it as i say repeatedly through the book and the point of the book and as it says at the end it's always better to talk it's always better to find somebody it's always better to seek common humanity if you can but um, living where I do, being able to see the downs from my study window, is like having a loaded shotgun on a kitchen table, because you know what's possible, you know, uh, as, I, as I listen to debates about how people might or might not be allowed to end their own lives, mm. I'm, I'm aware that eight minutes drive away, it would be immediately possible and almost certain. Mm. So, that, so that gives it a different perspective. And, and also, I should say that while I was writing this, I, I became friends with a, a, a lovely woman called Debbie Purdy, who was uh, a campaigner for the, uh, she, she wanted to go to uh, Dignitas and end her life. She had a um, terrible uh, condition, which was slowly confining her. And she wanted permission, she wanted legal permission to go there with her husband, uh, who's from Cuba, uh, to end her life at the moment of, of her choosing and she was seeking legal permission so that he would not be prosecuted. I mean, this was five or 10 years ago. It was very prescient given the attitude that we now have to people who come from other countries. And um, she was seeking that permission. She didn't win that permission. Uh, She did die, thankfully, a kind death. But being friends with Debbie made me see that perspective um, in a new way, opened my eyes to that. So I have some sympathy with that yeah. too. I don't I'm not a campaigner I don't come down on behalf of that. I'm not I'm a I'm a storyteller and I'm, I ask questions. I I'm not not a I don't write propaganda and I don't want to write propaganda. And one of the gifts of being here uh, I tweeted about it this morning is that in you know in an age of kind of hierarchies and certainties we can come here and be with the poets and the dreamers and the, and the, and the artists. Mm-hmm. And we can say and think things that were allowed, with the, the other, in other places we wouldn't be allowed to say. Mm-hmm. If we were having this discussion at a theological conference, we, 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 would, we would have to talk about it in different ways. Yeah. And I wouldn't be up to that. So I do have some sympathy for that. And, and I, I suppose what I would just say in conclusion to that is that it feels like it's not hypothetical where I live. Mm.
0: Yes, no, I can entirely see that. Well, I've, I've heard you know, s- fr- friends and others who speak about the fact of having, having the means to commit suicide around is actually profoundly comforting even though they're fairly certain that they'll never do it. That's another side of the mm. same thing isn't it? Yes
1: so and there's another, um, there's another element to this which is should you even be telling stories about it at all? Yeah. Should we even be talking about it? And you know I've had people come to me and say oh look you know this was triggering for me or you, you know you don't know what you're dealing with you shouldn't be, shouldn't be dealing with this but for every one or two of those I've had I've had 20, 30, 40 people who've come and said you know literally um, thank goodness that you are you are opening this up yeah. so that we can talk yeah. about it. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And we always have a choice. I mean, that's part of our nature, isn't it? We mm. have to, in a way, live with that. Let's have another passage mm. from the from the book. This is about Sarah. I think my, yeah. well, I have to, have to confess um, is my favourite character in the book. I think I don't um, think there's anything yeah. wrong with that. Is that all right? <laughs> <laughs> is that allowed? <laughs> um, mm.
1: Let me tell you a bit about Sarah. Then she's um, just turned thirty. She is, um, her father is Scottish, her mother is Jamaican, but as we heard earlier, her mother died early. Um, she's at odds somewhat with her own <coughs> background. Um, so, uh, so consumed was she as a child by grief at her mother going that she's not, never really kind of engaged with that and, and turned, turned her back on any memory of her mo- mother in a way. Um, she's very close to her granny uh, who is the mother of the Scotsman who is a priest who is her father, Robert. So, um, and Sarah is a teacher in the east end of London. Uh, She's been trying for a baby for a long time with Jack who uh, is an interesting character. Um, And they've come to the end of the process. And, and, And by way of introduction, I should have mentioned earlier that as you see the the lighthouse there, if you're in the lantern room um, on a day like that, you feel as if you're suspended between the sky and the sea. And all of these characters at the beginning, the, the guy who lives in the, the lighthouse, who's called the keeper at the beginning, and Sarah and Jack and other characters in the book, are all suspended between states. They're, all, they're, they're not able to move on quite yet. And for Sarah, she's caught in this moment of IVF. Uh, <coughs> la- it's her last chance. Um, they have no more money, and then there's this terrible thing that you have to go through when you're having that process, which I, I remember, um, where you have two weeks to wait to see if the process is going to work, and they seem like the longest two weeks of your life. Mm-hmm. And Sarah is in that place, and um, uh, and it's hard for her. So so the, the question for all of them is going to be, uh, you know, do, do we... Uh, do we allow change? Is change going to come for us? And, and while we're hearing Sarah's story, we hear about what happened with her granny. And this um, this uh, is a version of a true story that was told to me by uh, a friend called Ali, who's no longer with us. Uh, this happened to her, more or less. The second miracle of Sarah's life had an edge as sharp as the first. Granny was lying in a bed in the nursing home under a thin, pale blue blanket. Her hands were all red and gnarled, laid out flat as though she had been smoothing things down, making her bed in the morning. Someone had brushed her hair, so silver-yellow strands swirled on the pillow around her head. A mermaid underwater. Her eyes were closed. Her mouth was open. This is it, thought Sarah taking her turn at the end of the bed. Just a matter of time. She was a trainee teacher now in her early twenties, but this was a study day. Granny shivered, and Sarah realized she was waking up. Why was she shivering? The central heating was full on. There was a thick odor, the smell of bladders not attended to, bodies wasting away. Through the window behind Granny's head, she saw a chestnut tree, branches jostling like the heads and shoulders of a waiting crowd memory of the blinding light she'd seen as a child returned. Sarah felt exhausted. Hello, Granny, she said softly, not expecting an answer. Granny had not spoken since her fall months before. She bent and kissed her grandmother on the forehead. You rest, eh? Granny breathed. A little sigh every time. One more hill to climb, then down the other side rolling home. There was a hymn book on her bedside table. The words stamped on the black leather cover had lost their guilt. Sarah opened the book, releasing the scent of childhood Sunday morning. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Sarah sang softly in that hospital room, surprising herself, almost not singing, then singing a little louder, then singing to her grandmother. I once was lost but now I'm found, was blind but now I see. She sang with gathering strength, songs she had not sung for years. Sarah slipped her fingers between the cool, bony fingers of her grandmother and imagined that she began to sing too. She imagined the groan becoming a wheezy, wordless harmony. And she found to her astonishment that this was not imagination. She felt those fingers squeeze her own and heard a sound. Oh Lord my God, when I in awesome wonder. Softly, Granny was singing with her. When Sarah faltered, Granny caught the melody. Sarah sang now with purpose and vigor, as if she could drag her grandmother up and out of the bed with the power of the song, but her throat tightened and she stopped. There was quiet birdsong, the radiator gurgling, a buzz of applause from a television in a distant room. Then Granny, so quietly, began a song on her own. Oh, love that will not let me go. First line, page 352. Sarah joined her tentatively. I traced the rainbow through the rain. They sang together for 10 minutes, an hour, she didn't know. Granny sat up a little. She smiled a lot. And when they ran out of tune, she fell back on her pillows again and hummed notes that tripped and slurred and sounded like hymns, even though they were only the faintest of breezes passing through the aeolian harp of her chest. She got fainter and fainter until she seemed to have sung herself to sleep. Thank you, love. She'd spoken for the first time in months. Sarah couldn't believe it, but Granny smiled as though it was perfectly natural. There were even more remarkable things to come.
0: I could drink a little soup. Thank you. Thank you. That's really, what a powerful sort of evocation of memory, actually, and of the importance of that, you know, that that, Mm. that stays with us. And they I talk d-
1: about that in dementia patients, yeah, don't they? That yes, that's the way yes.
0: I mean, I do wonder. This is this is this is a little. Can I have a little side swipe? Of while course. I'm here? That um, about the contemporary church with its endless recycling of new music all the time. You know how these long-held words and melodies, how they stay. What will what will it be like for us when we are at that stage, or well, some of you younger ones <laughs> at that stage, if we don't have really deeply embedded. Texts and musical phrases that stay with us forever. I, th- I think that's such a big question. It was beautifully mm. done there, and Thank also you. the handing on from generation to generation as well. I mean, she gives something of her spirit, doesn't she, at that moment? You know, there's a there's a sort of passing on yes. of something as well as a receiving. And, and this
1: relates to what we were talking about earlier about names and stories. Yeah, that this is mm. a conscious effort to invoke those stories and pass them on. Mm, mm,
0: mm. Yes, yes, indeed. Um, can I turn now to the character of the, in a way, the keeper, the light keeper, um, who I suppose is the the, the stable core around which is he? everything... That's well, interesting. Well, that's how it seemed to me. No, sorry, I mustn't make assumptions <laughs> about that. But it seemed to me that he, 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 in the end, you know, he creeps into the book and then becomes sort of incredibly it, it, sort of much... He, he almost is like the figure of the lighthouse himself. He always becomes it, embodies it. Mm. Um, but... In a different way, as we've been talking, his dead wife, Rhi, Mm. is with him as a presence, as a voice throughout the novel. And I'm wondering whether that's um, your sort of realist about this or your kind of, you know, it's his internalized version of her. You know, what is going on in that long dialogue, which he's eventually able to resolve?
1: That's up to you.
0: Oh, okay. I well, t- tell me what you <laughs> think. You're allowed no. to review. Uh, no, <laughs> I'm not. <laughs>
1: no, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm telling this story so that you make your own mind up, um, allowing you that space. But beyond teasing you, Angela, I will answer mm. the question. Um, oh, you know, it, it could be any of the above, couldn't it? Yeah. I, rem- I remember we, we went through years and years of childlessness. Mm. And um, then. Uh, after some, pe- uh, some people had prayed uh, on, on Iona, as it were, and then um, uh, some science had been done, a child was born. And I remember holding Jacob, uh, named after wrestling the angel, because that's what it had felt like, uh, in my arms in a service, and thinking, praying, what is this? Is this a miracle of faith or is it a miracle of science? Over and over again, turning over those questions mm-hmm. in my head, and insofar as we ever get an answer, I seem to get an answer, and the answer was yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's helpful. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, it's a miracle of faith or a miracle of science, mm-hmm. or both or neither. Mm-hmm. Who knows? Mm-hmm. And so I, I am an ambiguist mm-hmm. when it comes to this, yeah. and, and I'm not. I don't. You know, that, that's, I did, I'm a deliberate ambiguist, mm-hmm. and, and when it comes to re. I think that he is caught in a place. Um, <coughs> they, brought, they brought the tower together to, to do it up. She's an artist. It's full of her art. And uh, then, for reasons that are not clear at the beginning, she's not there anymore. And he talks to her, and he hears her voice. Um, and I, I think that's a recognisable thing that happens in grief. Yeah. I mean, I've, I did the research. I, I've known, I've known mm-hmm. people to whom that happens to. Uh, and is that also a spiritual presence? I have absolutely no idea. But it's real, whatever it is. So we'll leave it there.
0: Yeah. I, th- I think a lot of people would sympathise with the sense that between a sort of hard-edged realism about issues of doctrine and belief and a kind of hard-edged atheism, a refusal of anything, there's, there's a, there's a grey area
1: there uh, yeah, it is
0: and, and th- well indeed yeah. and we, we all traverse that place really I mean even in a sense to me I regard myself as fairly orthodox in most respects but I, we walk by faith and not by sight You know, it's what, it's what we experience day by day which in the end is what, is what matters and your hmm. characters living in the present seem to me to do that very much so um, where do you stand in relation then to this institutional church which you think it m- might be dying <laughs> <laughs>
1: How long have we got?
0: Well, a couple of minutes and then I'll open it. So, so I mean,
1: a, a, little, a little of my story. I, 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 I uh, for context, very briefly, I was brought up in a, my, my dad had rebelled against the Salvation Army. He was an atheist, socialist, uh, politician. Uh, so I, but I was brought up with the knowledge of the Salvation Army and that. Uh, and the music? And definitely the music. Um, and my grandparents were very influential in that. And then when I was a teenager, I had a dramatic, a, a properly dramatic conversion, old school kind of you know, rally type conversion through uh, a lovely, lovely man called Eric Delve um, to uh, a kind of, a kind of uh, what rapidly became, <laughs> probably would distress Eric this, but it, probably, it rapidly became a fairly hardcore, charismatic evangelical mm. missionary. I, I joined youth with a mission and I went to work in refugee camps And I, with the zeal of a teenage convert, thought, well, if this is true, I need to take it as far as I possibly can. Mm. And then after that, um, I I found that unsustainable for all sorts of reasons. Um, I came back, and I did a degree, and I started to work for the Church Times. Mm. We were talking before the session. I was reporting on the decision at Synod to ordain women, which was an amazing privilege to be there. Long time ago now. Mm. And um, then I spent ten or fifteen years, either at church times or in national newspapers, writing about religion. Mm. And there, I know there are people in this room. I'm looking at one of them Ed, uh, who would I don't know if you would agree with this, but for me, you know, if you want to lose your faith, that's the way to do it. How true. <laughs> uh, I'm sure you haven't, but you know, for for me, for me, that that was it. I did get to the point of 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 losing. Losing it and just before Jacob was born, as I described so uh, and then um, you, what, but these things once seen cannot be unseen, and once you 're touched you can 't be untouched and God will not let you go you know um, as that as that hymn we just read about uh, says, and so in, inevitably i couldn't i couldn 't let it go, and I found my way back to to faith um, a faith that is happy and ready to be informed by the wisdom of other traditions and paths and religions, um, which believes in a, a God who is present, uh, who is ready and available and elusive simultaneously in a quite perplexing way, um, who can sometimes be found in places of institu- institutionalized religion and is sometimes driven from the door by accident in those places. And who can also be found in the hills or in the pub or in all sorts of, sort of other places where we don't expect him, her, them to be. Mm. Mm. So um, I think uh, that the church, I think there are, there are two notions of the church in my mind. There's the notion of the church as the fellowship of people who have good faith who are looking to, towards God and then there's the institutions, mm. and they're like a Venn diagram. And sometimes you can find people in both, mm. and sometimes they're in opposite
0: ones. Mm. Mm. Thank you very much, Cole. That's been a really, really fascinating mm. session. And we Absolute wish privilege. you joy for your next, next venture. You've said you had about five in your head. At least. Yeah, great. Yeah.
1: But thank you. It's been yeah. such a privilege. Thank you.
0: thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast.